Hello and welcome to Significant Figures. This is WHCL FM, Clinton, New York. I'm Viva Horowitz, the host of Significant Figures. And the guest I will be interviewing today is Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies, Heather Krupp. Heather, thank you so much for joining me on Significant Figures. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your research. A lot of my research right now focuses on thinking about climate change in the Arctic. The Arctic is currently experiencing air temperatures that are warming about twice as fast as the rest of the globe. And with that, we see trees and tall shrubs, all this vegetation that we normally don't think about when we think about the cold Arctic tundra are starting to grow up there and kind of increase in abundance. And so a lot of my research thinks about how plants kind of change their environment. They change the way water's moving across the surface of the earth. They change things like the temperature. And so my research focuses on how things like increasing uh, vegetation in the Arctic can influence further change there. What got me into that is I study ecohydrology, so that's the connection between living organisms and the water and energy cycle. And I also study things like how plants function. Wow, how do you take your data? Do you go to the Arctic? Yes, so I've been doing some research in Alaska and Siberia. And actually part of this process of thinking about how plants alter the environment involves a lot of data collection. We have to kind of account for all of these like climate and meteorological conditions. We also have to think about what's on the land surface and what's going on with the vegetation itself. And that can change over very small timescales, even like seconds or minutes. So we often have to collect a lot of data. So I go out and I set up things like sensors and take measurements in Arctic ecosystems, particularly in high Arctic boreal forests in Siberia and tundra boreal interfaces in Alaska. But I also compile a lot of people's data because there's been field researchers that have been doing studies kind of all over the Arctic and they can say something about kind of a very small area but it's often really difficult to kind of understand how that compares to other places in the Arctic. So I do a lot of data science as a part of my research, um, and it helps me answer these questions that we really wouldn't be able to answer without a large volume of data and kind of the statistical analysis or algorithms to help analyze that data. I think that's so interesting because you're working on something that I think a lot of people are are curious about how the planet is, is changing in the midst of the climate crisis, but also you're using this technique of big data, um, which, which I find fascinating. Which came first? Did you, did you originally start with environmental studies and then realize, oh, I need to learn more about big data? So I actually um, did not get into data first. So I got really into, as an undergraduate, I went to a small liberal arts college called the Evergreen State College. And it involved kind of a lot of experiential learning and field trips. And so I, as an undergraduate, I fell in love with like botany and natural history. Perfect. I was doing things like internships where it's like looking at the tiny hairs on like species of dandelion to see like whether or not they're different species. As I started doing more data collection, I really started to like statistics. And so my senior year of undergraduate, I really decided to start taking more kind of statistics and math courses. And I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school and learn a particular type of statistical modeling called Bayesian modeling. And so um, that's kind of what really got me into data science, was realizing that in order to actually understand like the processes of how the environment works, we often need large volumes of data and we need more sophisticated methods to analyze that data. And that was really the questions that were driving me of not just making observations, but kind of asking these questions about how our world worked. 
Oh, that's fascinating. I I think I could go on and on about my curiosity about Bayesian modeling, and I think it would make <laughs> this episode really technical and less of general interest. So I'm gonna repress that really technical desire of myself and return to the plants of Siberia and Alaska. I imagine that over the the course of your career, if the Arctic and Antarctic are changing so rapidly, you've seen this change. That it's not just something that you need to dig into the numbers to observe, that you can observe it just because you've been there. I've been working in the Arctic for the last five years, and I should say I actually got to working in the Arctic by working in the deserts of the southwestern United States. Um, So I really started answering these questions on desert plants where a plant can really drastically alter what happens with water in an area where it's so scarce. And it turned out the desert sites that I was working in in Arizona, like your classic saguaro cactus, very dry, those were getting the same amount of rain as the sites I started working at in Siberia. But actually half of that came when plants aren't even growing in the winter as snow. So it's a very, very dry environment. So I was working in deserts throughout my PhD. I was working in these arid deserts in uh, the southwestern United States. And in 2015, I switched over to working in sites in Siberia and Alaska. And so for the time that I've been working there, it's not quite enough to see necessarily like that level of change, although there's often really abrupt, rapid events of change, like things like when the frozen ground that's underneath these plants thaws, you can see subsidence, you can see some change. Is that a natural yearly cycle or is this actually a climate change so this it's is, never happened in our lifetimes kind of thing. Yeah, this is climate change driven. So a lot of the Arctic is covered in, or well, not really covered, it's underlain with this frozen ground that is perennially frozen. It's frozen for at least two years continuously, and we call that permafrost. And so a lot of what I'm interested in is how the plants are growing on top of this permafrost. You know, if there's kind of different depths in the soil until you reach this area where the ground is frozen, then we can see kind of different patterns in how plants can function and grow and how much water they can use. I've heard that because the permafrost has been frozen for so long, the soil isn't as rich as other parts of the planet that have had plants growing more thickly over millennia or even longer, are these areas that would have less nutrient-rich soil? So they do have less nutrient-rich soil, but it's actually not the, it's not that the permafrost soils are nutrient-poor. They're actually full of all of this biomass that froze before it could decompose. So you can find things like whole like mammoths in the permafrost. Oh, you can cool. find <laughs> these leaves of grass that are like tens of thousands of years old and they'll actually still have some green in them because they were just really kind of abruptly frozen and that has been really well preserved. So within permafrost, there's actually a lot of biomass that could eventually be if it thaws, it could be decomposed. It could have a lot of materials in there that could be readily decomposed by the microbes in the soil. But when we think about the soil that's on top of the permafrost, the soil that thaws on an annual basis, so every summer after the snow melts, we get the soils kind of warming up and the plants can grow. Those soils can be nutrient poor And that's because the soils are so cold for most of the year, you don't often have a lot of activity. So there aren't like a lot of kind of microbes and insects breaking things down. There's often not like a lot of replenishment. Sometimes the plants are growing very slowly. They're not adding a lot of new biomass to the soil. And so that top layer, because it's so cold and microbes are really slow to be active, 
that's where plants can start to really be limited by nutrients. And so one of the things that we think about when we think about the potential for this permafrost thaw is that all of a sudden there's going to be all of this carbon in the soil that wasn't able to be broken down by microbes. It's now thawed and we're going to start to see those microbes activate. We're also going to start to see plants, you know, being able to use some of those nutrients that were in that frozen soil. And so we expect that as permafrost thaws and we get less permafrost as a result of our warmer air temperatures, we're going to see a lot of carbon, uh, methane and carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere as greenhouse gases that was previously stored as biomass in this frozen layer soil. Uh, it never had a chance to ferment. That's correct, yeah. Wow, this is a, a kind of an effect that builds upon itself and could even be a nonlinear effect. Yes, so that's one of the main concerns when we think about the Arctic is thinking about the huge area that is underlain by permafrost. You know, sometimes it can be made more vulnerable by things like forest fires. We also are concerned about this vegetation change as trees grow more north, as we get taller shrubs growing, that tends to be associated with warmer conditions, particularly in the soil, in the winter. Shrubs and tall trees, they're really good at like trapping snow. And snow is a really good insulator. There's a reason I think people think about the Arctic, they might think about igloos, right? And we think about that because snow is actually really good at slowing down heat passing through that layer. And so what happens is in the winter when the air temperatures are really, really cold in the Arctic, if there's this blanket of snow on the ground, you may have negative 30, negative 40 degree temperatures in the air, but underneath that thick blanket of snow, the soil may be close to freezing, maybe only like negative four degrees C. It may even be warm enough for microbes to still be active and to be releasing greenhouse gases, even when we don't think of it as a time when very much would be able to be alive and active because of those cold air temperatures. Are there, are there microbes that can function below zero Celsius? There are on the margin. There are also, we have to consider the fact that, you know, the soil isn't just this one layer that immediately freezes, right? So even if the top of the soil is cooling down, that bottom part kind of right below this, the surface layer can take a while for the temperature to change as we have to think about the movement of heat going through the soil. And then there are also, there's this physical effect that we have to account for the energy of water. And so it takes energy to make that, it takes heat energy, we often refer to it as latent heat, to make that phase change from liquid water to solid water. Hmm. And so what happens when that's going on is we see temperatures linger around zero. And this happens when we have a lot of the, a lot of water in the soil, they're really flooded. And so this is really prime conditions for these special type of bacteria that generate methane and they live in flooded soils. Oh no, precisely those bacteria. So oh dear. it's particularly uh, good conditions for them. And so what can happen is we can get a lot of methane production under these conditions where we have like wet Arctic soils, we have soils lingering around this freezing temperature. And so that's kind of one of the future areas of research is really thinking about what's happening, um, not just in winter or summer, but what happens in our shoulder seasons? What happens as the soils are freezing up? What happens when they're thawing? Those tend to be really prime conditions for things like a lot of methane producing bacteria and just in general for thinking about greenhouse gases being released from the soil. So specifically the seasons where it's changing. Exactly, yeah. So where we have freeze and thaw going on. So what are the major discoveries that you are have worked on or want to see in your research? 
Yeah, so um, a lot of the the area that I've been working on is compiling these large data sets across the permafrost region um, that look at vegetation and um, they look at how vegetation is associated with different soil temperatures. And so in that research, one thing that I found was that it really seems like what vegetation, how vegetation changes, what happens with snow, what happens with the conditions in winter is really critical for thinking about the impacts of vegetation on permafrost and soil conditions. And so that was kind of a massive effort to, to compile all of this data, to work with data collected from um, I think it was something like 235 sites across the Arctic. You must be contacting so many people. <laughs> yeah. Um, are they just putting their data online or do you have to ask for it? So I put out a call. So I, this was work that was conducted through network that supports a lot of these types of data synthesis called the Permafrost Carbon Network. And so as a part of that, the synthesis that was outlined, I took the lead on that and there was, we put out a call for data. And so we just collected anyone's data, you know, who is willing to contribute. So it was certainly organizing with a lot of people, working with a lot of people to get this together. And it's really kind of inspired me to think a lot more about what's happening with plants in the non-growing season and this interaction between plants and snow. Is the data comparable that different people take in different locations? There was some data that could not be included that was not comparable. So the data set that I just described with 235 observations, that was almost all comparable. But even then, we actually, in the analysis, I ended up having to, by the time I looked at things like you know, was there complete years of observations that match up with timing around thinking about snow and winter and, you know, did everyone take observations at a height that was tall enough to be considered air temperature? You know, once I got through those kind of basic considerations, the actual number of sites that made it into the study were 111 sites. I think it's somewhere around 111, 115 or something like that. So it was over half the sites that really could not even meet some like basic comparisons, but at least that data set was all the type of observations, the frequency of observations, where you could at least kind of compare sensors. So that was kind of like the bare minimum that you need to at least kind of collect the same frequency and kind of type of data with, with similar types of sensors. So is the air temperature the main measurement that you're looking for from these 235 sites or 111 sites? So both air temperature and soil temperature. The challenge of any time we're thinking about something with the soil is that, especially things like temperature, it's going to be so tightly coupled to the meteorological conditions, especially the air temperature, that we have to account for that if we're looking over large regions where there's just, you know, big climatic differences between things like northern Alaska and central Siberia. Mm. I'm sure. What can you glean from these temperature data and how that would affect the plants that you're studying? So I do these big observations. I also think a lot about how plants use water and kind of what that means for how well they grow, but also how they affect the water cycle. And so when we think about soil temperatures, they're not just useful for things like the, you know, kind of thinking about the physical condition of the soil. They're also useful for thinking about how climate change might impact plant growth, what conditions, kind of the basic understanding of like what conditions affect plant growth, how much water plants use. And so um, when we're thinking about things like soil temperature and plants in the Arctic, one main consideration with plants is that the kind of area, the depth that their roots can grow is really constrained by this permafrost. And so there's a lot of oh, parts in the soil. They can't break through the icy parts. They can't break through the ice. When you grow small roots and you get ground freezing you can get this ice where it just kind of shears the roots or it like 
kind of breaks up the roots if the they're really small and they don't have a lot of structural kind of support. So those really like fine root hairs, plants basically have to regrow those um, when you have this a lot of freeze thaw going on in the soil. The the fine root hairs, those are the little tiny hairs. The on little the roots. tiny roots that you see, not like the big. You know, if you're walking in a forest and like there's the really big roots kind of sticking up in the path. Those ones are really large. They're not going to be as impacted. But if you think about, like, if you're working with, like, uh, you know, if you have, like, a little plant that you might be growing in your office or your home, all those little roots, those can be kind of destroyed by freeze-thaw processes in the soil. So are they acclimated to having a permafrost where they, where wherever they grow is stays frozen and so they don't? have to deal with a freeze-thaw cycle? So the, it's mainly the bigger roots don't have as much trouble. It's just that there has to be this kind of like regrowth period for some fine, very fine roots. And then um, the other thing is just kind of thinking about where the water and nutrients are in the soil. So I also do work really kind of studying plants in a detailed way. So I some of my work in Siberia was looking at how these long legacy effects of fire impact how plants like regrew and also how the permafrost conditions kind of differed after two very different fires. So like a very high severity fire and a low severity fire. And so a lot of my research looking closely at how plants use water and how they um, we're kind of function, functioning after, um, you know, regrowing for about 50, they're about 50, year old, 50 years old after about a 75-year-old fire that had occurred. And I found that a lot of these plants, um, a permafrost can be really shallow where I was working in Siberia. So it can be as shallow as like in the beginning of June when plants become active, it could be as shallow as like 15 centimeters. So you only had to go 15 centimeters into the ground before it was frozen in June. How big a plant would that be? These are trees. So trees grow very, trees. very high. And this is one thing to keep in mind is that the Russian boreal forest in Arctic is very different from the North American and the Scandinavian boreal forest. So they're all a type of tree called larch trees. When we get into the northern parts of that boreal forest, it's all just larch, and usually one species kind of grows within a region. And the trees are above the Arctic Circle. Their tree line can be, you know, only like about 100 kilometers from the Arctic Ocean. So trees go grow very, very like at very high latitudes, very far north in Siberia. When we don't normally think about that happening in our boreal forests in North America, we have this kind of very different ecosystem. And these trees are very, very slow growing. So some of the trees that at one site where they were particularly slow growing, these 50 year old trees would only be about, you know, maybe three to five centimeters in diameter. Oh, they would look like saplings. They, yeah, they're just little sticks with some needles on them, basically. They grow tall. They grow, they're not super tall, but they're definitely like at least, you know, probably 15 feet tall. 15 feet tall, 15 centimeters of roots. And so, so that's at the beginning of June. And then we get, as the, the summer's warming up, we see in those, environments sometimes by the end of the the summer we get to the deepest thaw we're gonna see and so in that case it was about 30 centimeters 30 to 45 centimeters and so that is where their roots are constrained but really they most of the roots occur within the top 10 centimeters of the soil well i don't think most trees want their roots to die every winter. Yeah, and I, I should say the bigger roots, those can make it through the winter. It's just the really small, small roots that can have um, difficulty 
kind of with the freeze thaw, it's easy for them to die. Yeah. They must grow their roots very widely to be able to support such height. Yeah, you know, that's a, it's interesting The that forester, they're really small. They're also very dense. So I think they get this, like, there's just like this mat of trees. They grow at a very high density. There are certainly much, much bigger trees in forests that aren't as dense. So they're much wider trees. They look more like what we would expect a tree to look like. But even then, we still see very shallow roots, even when there's, in those areas where the trees are less dense, sometimes the thaw can go as deep as like one meter. But we still don't see roots growing that far down necessarily. We see the occasional root, but still most of them are very shallow within the top 20 centimeters. Do the roots intertwine from tree to tree so that they're supporting each other? You know, I'm not sure it's, so the the challenge with a lot of measuring roots in loca- remote locations is really hard to, without totally excavating and like destroying the surface, it's really difficult to say like what root a tree came, or what, like kind of what tree the root originated from, right? So you can kind of collect samples where you just measure like how many roots are there, but it's difficult to say like, was it from the, this tree or this one? It's just kind of like looking at the roots in bulk, like as a bulk measurement. So you show up in Siberia with your shovel? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the soils are very, they're almost like a sponge. They're very full of, they're covered with moss. They're very full of organic material. So actually, when we sample roots, we don't use a shovel. We use a like a bread knife and you cut sections out of the soil and you pick it up and then you can like have a square that you dig through and can kind of analyze more closely. So these are very different soils than what we're used to thinking about uh, at lower latitudes where it's just kind of this like, you know, mineral soil, uh, you know, something you might expect to see in your landscaping or agriculture. You make it sound more alive even than what we have here. Yeah, I mean, there is a living part of the soil. The law of moss can be a huge, um, moss and lichen both can be a huge part of these high latitude ecosystems, particularly in those forests in Siberia. um, Whenever we get a lot of shading from trees, there's high densities of trees, seems to be a lot of moss that really likes to grow in that environment. So sometimes when I'm studying roots, they'll actually be like roots in the moss layer. So they're, um, it's not a lot, but you know, it's almost like a part of the soil, even though it's, it's moss, it's not really, you know, what we think of when we think of soil. So my new vision of your data taking is that you show up in Siberia with your bread knife <laughs> and you go and you cut out some circle or square of mossy soil, very spongy mossy soil, you pick it up and then at some point later, maybe that day, maybe another day, you start crumbling through it and making notes about what you find. Close, yes. There's a lot of weighing and sorting that (laughs) goes on in there, but that's right. And, but I'm really, I'm showing up with things like that, but I'm also deploying a lot of sensors that collect a lot of data. So I put sensors in the trees that measure like how fast the water is moving, put out sensors that measure the energy balance, it measures how it's traveling through the soil, the temperature of the soil, the incoming solar radiation, and also that long wave, what's happening with long wave energy. So there's a lot of sensors that are just kind of collecting data for me when I show up to a site. And so that can be a huge part of that, is maintaining those and setting them up. You have this term, long wave energy, and I I think I'm sensing a a physics concept here. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. Some of my research thinks a, a lot about the energy balance, thinking about what happens with long wave radiation. First of all, we know that's so important from a broader climate perspective, right, for our greenhouse gases. Exactly. Um, But also thinking about what's happening on the surface. Plants can really 
affect the distribution and the partitioning of energy, thinking about what happens with incoming solar radiation, how much of it is reflected off the surface versus absorbed, and also thinking about what's happening with long-wave radiation as well. So, for example, you're probably actually familiar with this concept living in a place like this where we have trees and we get lots of snow and in the spring we start to see the sun coming out maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, if we have a few sunny days, the sun is at an angle where the trunks of the deciduous trees are really, really good at absorbing a lot of that sunlight, especially compared to when the whole ground is blanketed in snow. The snow is really good at reflecting light that comes in from the sun back off of the surface. So what happens is over time, this kind of absorption of the solar radiation builds up. And at night, that means that the plants are really, or the trunks of the trees are emitting more long wave radiation than that snow surface because it didn't absorb as much energy. And so we actually see snow melt like around the trunks of the trees faster than like if you're looking at a big field with no trees in it and it's just covered in snow. So thinking about the energy partitioning in the Arctic is a really important part of thinking about how much radiation is going to be reflected off of the surface, how do plants impact that, and how do forest structures impact what happens with energy and how it's partitioned. I love that we can bring in the physics concept that dark objects absorb sunshine more readily than white objects and then how that affects these forests that they can actually warm up faster. Yeah, and it's a huge part of climate change and especially climate change in the Arctic. So a lot of times we focus on climate change, we really are, are keyed in on carbon, right? We're thinking very carefully about greenhouse gases. But we have to remember there's this radiative forcing component. We have to remember that a lot of our Arctic is covered with snow for a huge part of the year. The oceans are covered in ice. And when it's not polar night and there's actually sun there, that means that's a huge amount of solar radiation that's reflected off of the surface rather than absorbed. So thinking about these changes in uh, snow cover and then obviously in the Arctic, ice cover is a huge part as well. That all is a huge component to thinking about climate change and regionally for the Arctic, but it also has major implications for thinking about our global climate system. So what you're saying is, if the snow all melts, then all that reflection off of the shiny white snow, that goes away and this planet absorbs more heat. Exactly, exactly. And so we're seeing earlier snow melt in a lot of places in the Arctic. And, um, and so that's another piece of my interest in thinking about what happens when we have more tall vegetation. We have woody stems, we have tree trunks sticking up out of snow, when once there might have been just tundra grasses that are entirely covered with snow. And so this is a big deal when you think about a lot of these areas traditionally have snow melt in June, maybe end of May. They're very long lasting kind of winter snow cover seasons. But when that starts happening earlier, we can start getting a lot more energy absorbed by the surface. We can see warming air and surface temperatures as a result. And that is gonna impact kind of what happens in the Arctic. And we also know Arctic temperatures are really closely linked to things like weather systems. So we know that there's potential repercussions for like the global climate as well. What about the plants? Are you seeing southern plants spreading northward and crowding out the northern plants? So this is, this is really an area of a lot of active research, but there's been a lot of kind of great insights that have been coming out. And so what's happening is that some tree lines are moving northward. When we think of tree line, like where trees stop growing and we just get small tundra, it's not really a line. It's kind of like patches of trees and then eventually they just stop growing. 
So that's filling in. They're kind of increasing in density. We know that these tall shrubs, like shrubs in the Arctic are usually only like, there's a lot of shrubs in these grassland, small shrub ecosystems that are maybe like 10, 20 centimeters tall. They're very short shrubs. But we're seeing tall shrubs advancing, whether that's you know a meter shrub, but a meter and a half shrub. Um, but we're also, sometimes these shrubs can be a little bit more like trees, like especially when they grow in really wet places or along floodplains, those shrubs can even be like two meters tall. So they can, uh, we're getting like this kind of advance that's both like kind of just existing shrubs that are there are growing taller, they're growing outward more, um, tree lines are kind of moving. So it's it's kind of a slow like creep of existing vegetations getting bigger, growing further. What about the water? You study how the water moves through the trees. You said it's like a desert. There's not much precipitation. Although it's hard to tell that maybe because like if you go there, all the snow is just sitting on the ground. So it looks like there's been plenty of precipitation. Exactly. Yeah. So these are surprising to people, especially you know, people really don't think of these as dry ecosystems. It's the same amount of precipitation as a lot of the deserts in the southwestern United States, for example. But when you think about it, it's much cooler. So that kind of does help with there's not quite as much evaporative demand. So when trees are transpiring or when there's like water sitting out on the surface, it's not going to quite evaporate as fast as it does in a really hot place. So even though there's less precipitation, it's not quite as dry as those really hot, dry places because the air, that there's not as much demand for liquid water to evaporate in the air, if that makes sense. But it's also funny because there's a lot of water stored there, even though there might not be like a lot of precipitation in a given year. There's all of that water held in the soil and permafrost. There's also kind of a lot of surface bodies of water. And so certainly when you see these ecosystems, you don't think of them as being water limited. But the plants themselves, if they're not growing in one of these really wet regions, like right along a river, um, those plants growing in what we call upland areas that aren't really connected to a body of water, that is a very dry situation for them. I'm not sure I was aware that there were rivers where there's permafrost. Yes, yes. And actually, there are a lot of major river deltas, um, especially in Siberia, and there can be like some trade-offs. Uh, like certainly rivers can drive a lot of like erosion of permafrost. So there's often these large exposures that a permafrost in really ice rich areas where you can basically see the permafrost exposed because the river is just kind of driving like a natural erosion of that area. It's not necessarily climate change related. Okay, so the permafrost is the frozen layer of soil underneath the top layer of soil, but if the water runs over the top layer of soil, then the it washes away all the parts that aren't frozen and bam, there you are at the permafrost, the frozen layer. Yeah, and keep in mind too, the permafrost layer can go really, really deep. Like there are some places where that, you know, that easily goes 20, 30 meters into the ground. You um, mean the bottom of the permafrost? The bottom of the permafrost, yeah. So it can be a very thick, deep layer. So even if there's like a river on top, you know, there may be like permafrost very deep down that's a, you know, and I'm not quite a hydrologist, geoscientist, thinking about permafrost river interactions. But the thing to think about with permafrost is that often what happens is we have all this water sitting frozen in the soil. And water, when it's frozen, is much bigger than liquid water. So oh, that's what true. Happens, it expands. Exactly. So what happens when we have these soils thaw in some areas is the ground actually subsides because now there's this extra airspace in the soil. It was once taken out by frozen water, but now it's just liquid water. You mean like sinkholes? 
Yes, exactly. So there's these large craters and sinkholes forming, and kind of more minor versions of that are what we call thermokarsts. So the, what happens is the ground kind of subsides, it sinks a little, and then a lot of that liquid water flows into that area and actually forms a lake. So there's a lot of lake features um, that are formed by permafrost thaw when you look across these tundra landscapes. And these are newer because of climate change, these lakes? There are newer ones from climate change. There are also um, remnant ones and older ones. We Permafrost is like, we consider the areas in the far north and it's a little bit more south in places like Siberia where it's much colder, a little bit more continental weather. Um, we, we consider those areas like continuous permafrost. So it's kind of defined by like, yeah, how much of the area underground is covered by permafrost, or is un underlain by permafrost. Uh, continuous means every place you look is permafrost? Mostly, you know, it's, there's a, a formal definition that's like kind of an amount, an area that has to be covered by permafrost. And like, if you take a square area, like how much of that has to be covered by permafrost to be continuous. And I could not give you those numbers off of the top of my head right now. Um, but as opposed to being a really patchy yes. permafrost, it's, it's permafrost here and there, and then these other areas traditionally thaw. Exactly. And so there's other regions, like a lot of Alaska, um, the more kind of southern parts of uh, Siberia, those are covered by, or they're underlain. I always want to say covered, but it's really under the soil. Um, those are what we call discontinuous permafrost, where you can run into areas with permafrost, but then you might go just, you know, a kilometer over and there's no permafrost under that soil. So that's areas where there's parts of permafrost, um, but then it's really not like covering the entire area. And then we also have uh, kind of what we call really sporadic permafrost. And so those are areas of the very southern extent of permafrost. Um, and you just kind of very rarely find permafrost in that area. Little patches. Exactly, yeah. So, um, so we have to remember that this permafrost is a remnant from kind of the ice age, like glacier system, right? So... So these area, there are some areas that have that like in the discontinuous zone, um, you don't find permafrost there anyways, because that's more part of that natural kind of climatic progression um, that has been occurring like, you know, since the ice age. Um, so sometimes you can find like thermocars that have been there for a while. It's not necessarily that it happened because you know, it was like an abrupt thaw event that would was from the last like decade or two. So there is, you know, there's kind of a, it's a complex system to look at and you have to consider the geology as well as the, um, as well as the kind of current climatic conditions and past climatic conditions. I'm sure. So I think I want to take a larger view, a uh, more planet-wide view, because the, the Arctic and the Antarctic are supposed to be symptoms, or I've heard they're symptoms of what's happening globally. So all of this stuff at the permafrost, what does that have to do with us here in Clinton, New York? Yes, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, the main concern with the Arctic is that it's an area that's experiencing really rapid change, but it has a lot of potential to drive feedbacks in our climate system that will amplify that change. So when we think about permafrost thawing, what's happening is we're seeing greenhouse gases getting released from the soil that would normally have been just kind of left frozen there and would have been stored in the soil. When we think about our decisions, the climate practices we've had, we really have to remember that we've put a lot of these, these processes in motion 
that are going to continue to play out as permafrost thaws over the next century. We're going to have additional greenhouse gases entering our atmosphere that aren't from our own anthropogenic emissions directly and aren't the ones we're thinking about measuring. But they're certainly the ones that have been Certainly that greenhouse gas released from permafrost, that was put in motion as a part of, you know, our previous decisions and our greenhouse gas emissions over this last century. Essentially, at that point, like it or lump it, the planet will get warmer. Exactly, yeah. And we're already, you know, we're already on that trajectory. So we have to remember, even if we are able to take a lot of mitigation efforts, we're able to cap emissions, we already have kind of permafrost thaw initiated that, um, you know, there's areas where that may not go back. And so we're going to see those greenhouse gases continue to be emitted, and especially as our air temperatures continue to rise in the Arctic. And the same goes for a lot of other Arctic issues. Things like sea ice are really critical when we think about potential feedbacks in our climate system. So certainly, we should keep in mind that the actions we're taking now and into the future, they're continuing to worsen these processes that are going to continue to amplify climate change, even if we are able to abruptly like, stop and curb our emissions right away. Those processes are already in place. The other thing I would remind people is that we often think about the Arctic as this kind of remote, uninhabited place that you know is warming twice as fast as the rest of the globe there's all these drastic changes in sea ice and permafrost in the kind of air temperature and snow conditions but it's really not uninhabited there's a lot of settlements there's cities in the arctic and the subarctic and there's a lot of indigenous communities that have been on the front lines of climate change. And they're often not the ones that are, you know, they're not, they don't have large climate footprints. They're not responsible for a lot of our carbon emissions, but they're already experiencing things like having to, you know, rebuild their homes on higher ground because the coastline is eroding because permafrost is leaving it susceptible to thaw and subsidence as we see less sea ice forming and more periods of open water with more wave action. So we see these communities, we really, they've had a way of life, you know, since like time immemorial in these areas. And we see them having to adapt and potentially like relocate, change their ways of life, all because of the climate actions we've been taking. That's interesting. I was thinking of it as being very remote. In fact, I, I was wondering when I picture this area with sinkholes and mossy ground and thick, thin trees, thick in the sense that they're close together, thin in the sense that they look like saplings, even if they're old. Have you ever uh, run into a moment where you were, felt you were in danger in the wilderness? Uh, you know, actually... <laughs> No, safety training is a huge part of like before going out to the Arctic, like doing a safety training, doing a kind of first aid response is a huge part of thinking about field research. And so there are certainly uh, situations when uh, drawing from that safety training and kind of being cautious has come into play. You know, things like encountering a moose or, uh, you know, just kind of being bear aware kind of stuff. But overall, you know, there's kind of a lot of, of caution that goes into planning field work. What kinds of bears have you seen? It's actually, in Siberia, there's not a lot of bears. There tends to be a lot of, like, hunting of wild animals in general. I actually have not seen a bear in Siberia. So that is, I, most of my bear experiences are all from from the lower 48 states, which is very ironic when you think about doing field work in Alaska and Siberia. That doesn't mean that just because you don't see them, the safety protocols are certainly still in place in terms of being prepared with bear spray and knowing how to respond. 
Do you have to store food in clever ways? In Siberia, not so much. In Alaska, yes, certainly you want to keep food in a, a vehicle or like a canister. If there are any students listening to this radio show who want to get involved in research with you, what can they expect? That's a great question. I work with a lot of students. I actually, COVID has been impacting things, obviously. So um, hopefully in the near future, I'll be able to offer some more field experiences for students that are actually kind of in Alaska or other areas of the Arctic but I tend to work with students that I, because of my background, I do all sorts of work, right? I do field work where kind of, I work with students putting sensors in trees, like measuring how much water they're using. So for example, Professor Strong and I, this summer had the Campus Sustainability Working Group had removed a bunch of invasive plants and so, We looked at things like how that impacted, how much carbon was stored in the forest, how much leaf area, how much water is being used by the plants, and how it affected the soil conditions. I host projects like that, like both on campus and then also kind of thinking forward to planning some of those in the future in the Arctic. But I also work with a lot of spatial data sets. So I work with data collected from satellites. I actually collect some data with drones Um, and so I have students working on projects related to like making maps with drones and kind of learning how to collect data from drones and there's always those opportunities to work with satellite data as well so students can find kind of a wide range of projects whether they're really interested in big data learning more data science tools or they're interested in kind of learning about those plant environment, soil interactions, and kind of doing that field work that really kind of measures things like how much water is in the soil, how much water are plants using. Yeah, your research seems to span every size scale from the tiny little hairs on the root of a tree all the way up to satellite view imagery. Yes, I think it's actually a really important part of thinking thinking through what's happening and being very aware of the observations we take at one scale, like may not match what we see at another scale. So one of my projects right now that I'm kind of working on writing up is um, looking at kind of boreal and Arctic snow data that's remotely sensed from satellites and it's combined with kind of climate models to be the most accurate product we can get. And so the patterns we see with how vegetation impacts things like snow melt doesn't actually match with what we see when we look at like just a cluster of plants and we look at it like at a very small scale. So keeping in mind this idea of like how important is what I am observing, it might be important at a very small scale, like this particular ecosystem, this particular area, doesn't always necessarily match with what we see globally. And so a lot of what I like to think about is this idea of like scaling what what's important locally what's important globally heather crop thank you so much for coming on significant figures i'm viva horowitz this is whcl fm clinton new york